My grandfather told me something a long time ago that just stuck with me. He says, you are more Californian than you are Gaurnaya or Ormijnaya because you've never been to those villages. You've never been a part of those tribes. You were born here. Shlama Amchon, everyone, and welcome to episode 86 of the Assyrian Podcast. My name is Peter, and we are so excited to have Benjamin Aziz with us this week. I've known Benjamin, or as I like to call him, Benny, for many years, since before our days in Sacramento, California. It was great to catch up with Benny to talk about sports, his father, Walter Aziz, his passion for community impact, and his call to action for all Assyrians. After this episode, you'll get a clear sense that community is important to both of us. Last week on my personal Instagram, I crowdsourced some thoughts and ideas on what community means to my followers, and I'd like to share some of those responses with you all. Sarah, my former colleague, writes, Community means someone in your vicinity knowing and caring about you enough to say, Hey, I didn't see you last week. Everything okay? Anthony Nerse chimed in, Community equals people belonging to some shared characteristic like location or background like ethnicity. People are automatically members of communities, but people can be willingly active members of communities. Elizabeth from my 2019 Gishru cohort says, Community is the people and places that make you feel connected to the sense of being. Chantel says, Uniting as one family regardless if you're talking about a cultural community or a school community, for example. Doni says, community equals belonging and support team. Rima from Chicago, it means extending your hand and knowing someone will be there to hold it. A certain podcast also had some responses that they shared with me. Sharing the same traditions as a part of a community. Enjoying the company of others, sharing the same interests, and having a sense of belonging. Another responder said that wherever you find yourself in the diaspora, there's always a home to welcome you. And of course, being Peter, I had to look up the Assyrian word for community. And I found a couple that we can choose from or fit to our liking. Ayuta means harmony or community, fellowship, agreement. Achuta, a fraternity, a fellowship. Knushta. A congregation or assembly, community, an organization, a society. But now let's get back to Benjamin's story. Benjamin is an Assyrian-American sports business executive and entrepreneur focused on massive sports projects with transformative economic and community impact. Benjamin played a key role in two highly publicized public-private projects in Sacramento, California. He most recently helped manage Sacramento Republic FC's successful bid for a Major League Soccer expansion team, and previously worked on the city's task force to build a new downtown arena for the Sacramento Kings. As the son of a singer and songwriter Walter Aziz, Benjamin brings a creative approach and strong sense of purpose to his work. Having been inspired by the universal language of music and his father's dedication to the Assyrian community, Benjamin was born in San Francisco, California and raised in the East Bay Area. He attended UC Berkeley and University of San Francisco and is the co-founder of the emerging Oakland Roots soccer team and is launching LaCour, a fashion brand inspired by basketball culture. 
Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligarakis and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligarakis. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847-928-9516. Support is also brought to you by John O'Shauna. John is a real estate professional in Arizona and California. Whether you're thinking about buying or selling real estate in Arizona or California, put John's proven track record to work. John's focus is residential, multi-units, and commercial properties. Check John out on facebook.com slash John O'Shauna Realtor or Instagram at john.oshauna, O-U-S-H-A-N-A. Contact him today at 209 209- Nine six eight nine five one nine. And now I present Benjamin Aziz. Benny Aziz, welcome to the Assyrian Podcast. Thank you, Peter. It's great to be here. I, heard... I feel at home. I'm in the East Bay. Yeah, this is this is like your hometown almost. Absolutely. Uh, I heard you were Khachakribam in that because we've taken so long to have you on the podcast. Is that true? Uh, that is not true at all. In <laughs> fact, I'm waiting for the day, Peter, that I interview you. I can't wait, man. I'm looking forward to it. Benny, let's start off with where you were born, where you were raised. Introduce yourself to the listeners. I was born in San Francisco, grew up here my entire life, went to Berkeley. So most of my youth and adult life is spent in the Bay Area. You said you went to Berkeley. Expand on that. What is Berkeley? UC Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley. I would say the best public school in the United States. No bias, of course. No bias, of course. So for the listeners out there who may not know, your father is rather famous in our community. Yeah, my dad's a singer. Been a singer from since before I was born. So how is it like growing up as Walter, as is his son? I mean, to me, he's dad, right? He's a father as much as he is a friend. And so we've gotten along on on a very deep level, on a different level than maybe I've seen some of my friends and their fathers. Yeah. And he credits you and your brother. I've seen on a lot of albums, too, whether it's artwork and I think even lyrics, too. Yeah. So I've done a lot of album art for him, did some production with him. You can say from an executive producer type Mm -hmm. angle, uh, especially on the Away album. Um, I was in the studio with him a great deal during the, the recording of that album. Yeah. So do you, I mean, I'm going to nerd out a little bit yeah, on here because I love it. certain music. How, do you remember like going to, as a kid, going to gigs with your dad, Assyrian parties, you know, you have a full on band and your dad up there with some of the legends, like what, take us back to those times, you know, or some emotions during those times. So I remember earliest memories of him on stage. I would be four or five years old. Mm. You know, you know our parties and weddings, they go late. Yeah. And so I would end up falling asleep at like 11 o'clock <laughs> and the music's blasting. And I learned to be a deep sleeper because of that. <laughs> I think what a lot of people don't know about my father is that Assyrian music wasn't his favorite music growing up. If you ask my dad what his favorite band ever is. My guess is Pink Floyd. Creedence Clearwater Revival is my dad's favorite all-time band. CCNR. CCNR. <laughs> The Western sound has influenced his music, but I think if you dig deeper, the Western sound is influenced by Eastern music, and so it all kind of comes full circle. 
And so, you know, my dad has a lot of rock guitar in his albums. He's got a lot of rock drums and different rhythms and, and recording styles. And I think that th his inspiration kind of really shines through. Mm -hmm. what, is, what is some advice that you give him or what is some guidance? I mean, I could maybe hearken back to the, the Away album when I was in the studio with him. You know, you're talking about, I think, late 90s, early 2000s, right? When Latin pop was making a big resurgence. It was like Mark Anthony, Jennifer Lopez. Yeah, and so my dad's always been inspired by Latin music and, mm -hmm. and rhythms, which are very similar. Like the reggaeton rhythm is uh, the same rhythm as Sheikhani, you know? Yeah. And, and it's, a lot of people don't necessarily make that connection. And so I was listening to a lot of stuff growing up that I would just like sure my dad listened to. Like, my dad was listening to Tupac on the way to the studio to record his album. <laughs> and, like, he wanted to be inspired by what's going on at the time in popular music. He wants to stay relevant. Yeah. It's one thing to say, well, you're cherry-picking sounds and, and, and infusing them into what you do. It's more about being inspired, right? And so I think I've always admired my dad's open-mindedness to new sounds, new ideas. And I think that's what keeps him fresh. I won't say his age on air here, but he doesn't look or act or feel his age. I'm gonna put you on the spot here a little bit. Yeah. Top three favorite Walter Aziz songs. That song was written by my grandfather. What's his name? Giorgis Yosef, who was a huge inspiration on my father. My dad's father, my grandfather, passed away when my dad was eight years old. My grandfather from my mother's side was like a father for my dad. Hmm. I, I like Kulit Lele for a lot of reasons. <laughs> And then I might have to say away just because I, I wrote some of the, the English lyrics on that song. So. <laughs> From the land between two rivers came a love that lasts forever. Anything we want is ours. Hit me with a touch of passion. Feels like a chain reaction. Every moment, every hour. Wait, 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 what are yours? It's definitely Kulit Lele, and I do like Kochaya, just because I, I want to say it was probably the first Walter Aziz song that I heard. And then the third one is Akitu. Obviously the way that your father delivered it and singing it, but also who the, the poet, you know, Ninos mm -hmm. Aho, mm -hmm. who's a, an Assyrian nationalist, you know? Western or Eastern dialect. You remember there was two versions yeah. of that song. There were both. I like, what's interesting is your, your dad is one of those people that introduces from an Eastern Assyrian perspective is introducing Western. I, th I think him and Linda Georgiana Jindu were kind of the only ones to transcend into Western from Eastern Assyrian into Western Assyrian. Mm -hmm. So obviously, both, I can't say I like either, either Western or Eastern, but sure. both of them, definitely. 
your favorite singer besides your dad? Oh, man, Assyrian that's a, singer. That's a good question. I, you know, I'm going to have to go with the emperor, Sargon Gabriel. Yeah. Um, my dad did a song with Sargon. I was in the studio during the recording of that song. That was a funny, funny time. I bet. Sargon is not used to, he's like Jay-Z. He goes up there and he does one take. <laughs> We were in the studio in San Francisco when he was recording. The engineer wanted to do multiple takes. You know, Sergon was just like thrown off by this process. Like, how do you, what do you mean? Like, I'm going to go do multiple takes. And yeah. Like, what do you mean you're going to edit certain parts of my vocals from one track and then paste them next to an edit from a vocal from another track? Like, you don't do that to me. Like, mm -hmm. I'm Sergon Gabriel, you know? <laughs> uh, so I, I remember that. Uh, it was a hell of a process. He's just, he's a funny guy, very down to earth. You know, I mean, what kind of inspiration he's had on so many singers like his sound just exists yeah and it will exist beyond him like there's a sound that you can really just identify and trace directly back to him yeah a lot of people try to emulate him mm -hmm. to this day even they yeah. try to emulate him absolutely you have a master's in sports management just what quick transition huh? yeah I'm, I'm diving into it you know what what has that degree enabled you to do what does that sort of degree do for anyone sports has been a passion of mine and the sports business has been a passion of mine from childhood. You know, I was the kid that played Madden football or NBA Live. And rather than doing... And these are video games. These are video games. Okay. And rather than doing like the season mode or playing games, I would do the franchise mode and like manage my salary cap, move players around. I was very fascinated by the business of sports. At Cal, I studied poli-sci, which was my undergrad. Mm -hmm. You know, I studied poli-sci because I wanted to learn more about how the world works. I, and I didn't think about what my major would do for me from a career perspective. I just wanted, I realized I was still young enough to just broaden my horizons. So I was interested in politics and international relations and I went that way. Um, never did I really think that once I focused on the sports industry that my political background would be relevant, but it was. And I ended up finding a niche that kind of blended the intersection between sports and politics. Hmm. And so I went into sports management as a way to just kind of break into the industry. You know, I went to USF here in San Francisco. I just went for it. And the one thing that it taught me was just the power of networking. It's a tough industry to break into, but once you break into it, plenty of opportunity. Um, and so I've been privileged to be, you know, working in sports for a long time now. So it's like a hybrid between business and then kind of the sports world and effect. Yeah, well, I mean, it's definitely all business. There's a lot of people that jump into these programs with the interest of getting in the sporting side. And I could tell you that, you know, my dream as a kid was to be a GM of an NBA team. And once you get in, you realize there's so much more to it, right? There's the marketing side, there's the revenue side. Uh, and then there's this whole other side that I hadn't really known about until I really got kind of thrust into it, which is the assemblance of an ownership group and, yeah. and the stadium and all these different factors that go into what a professional team looks like and how it's structured so i just credit the program for focusing on the industry in a different way you know i'm going to take you back to the early 2000s i remember some of my earliest memories of you were the assyrian basketball league of california abc that's right so this was a league assyrians mostly central valley bay area modesto series turlock california and i see this guy on the sidelines coaching there i don't think any other team from the different cities had a coach were you the only coach? No, I wasn't the only coach. There was a few coaches. You know, that league was an extension of what had been built 
uh, from the club and church level. There were a lot of tournaments going on. Basketball, all basketball? All basketball. The person that I you know, want to honor, mention, shout out is Noel Bodagi. He was a, yeah, he, um, he had a big impact on me and so many other people. He was a, a community organizer, to say the least. He coached a team in San Jose and was organizing tournaments in San Jose. And this was a time period where, you know, whether it's a club or a church, they would host local tournaments and then invite organized teams from different cities around Northern California to come in and participate. And oftentimes from LA too. And these were just like invitationals, if you will. But it really brought our community together. And I remember watching some of those tournaments and saying, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. I mean, this is everybody from our community speaking our language, playing Dumbuk in the in the stands. Oh yeah. And this was like for us by us and I was just drawn to it. You know, me thinking along the lines of being a sports organizer, sports manager uh, in the making, which I didn't really know I wanted to do that at that time. I was 19 years old when I was the commissioner of of the this Assyrian league. Basketball League, which at that time grew into a league of 12 men's teams or boys and men and four women's teams. Mm-hmm. So we had 160 athletes around the state compete in regional games and we had a whole season-long schedule and a champion at the end of the year the league started growing to a point where the most competitive or best Assyrian players around the country wanted to come play here because this was the forum this was the place to showcase your talent different teams in California would then pluck players from outside the state and they would come in and play every you know two three months it was competitive very competitive and I think so one of the referees that we had, an Assyrian ref, he's an, he was an actual college ref. And him and his colleagues refed one of our games. It was a close game, uh, two of the best teams in the league. And he said the referees came back and said this was a D3 level basketball game. I was blown away by that because there was a lot of guys that were playing in that game that had never played organized basketball. By D3, when you, when you say D3, you mean uh, the, a division, like a level of division in college basketball? Yeah, so like when you watch March Madness, that's Division One. Like the, the premier college teams compete in Division One, Correct. And then they go down from there. Yeah. Okay. But D3 is still prominent schools. Right. And so for us to have just manufactured that out of thin air, I think was, was amazing. I was drawn by two things in that league. It was community and it was the sport. And so I just wanted to continue to build something that we could say is ours. And there's so many people that met through that, got married, you know, meeting each other at tournaments. I mean, yeah. tons of friends of mine uh, met their significant others through this league. It was a draw for people. I mean, you said there were 100 plus players, but then you count all the people that would come watch and then later on come and hang out. Yeah. And at night, everyone would go to the Assyrian party, wherever the case may be. But... Those were fun times, you know, growing up during that period. It was. I mean, imagine four mini conventions throughout California. And that's what it felt like. Beyond coaching basketball and being in sports management, where did life take you after, you know, your graduate degree in sports management? So while I was in the program, I was working at the Warriors. Professional basketball team. Yeah. um, I hope people know who the Golden State Warriors are at this point. I don't think we need context for that team. (laughs) Yeah. And so this was before the Warriors were the Warriors, right? I mean, they were a terrible team for a long period of time. They finally made the playoffs during those We Believe years with Baron Davis. I jumped in the year after that. It was a dream come true to work for my favorite team. 
So what did you do for the Warriors? What did you do for this professional basketball team? So my first year, I was an intern, and I was working in game ops. Game ops is like, think of it as the entertainment around the game. Think about all the stuff that goes into putting on a show at an NBA arena. There was a, there was a funny story when I did that once. It was, it was a TNT game. The Warriors were playing the Lakers. National TV. National television. You know on TNT, whenever they have like Charles and Kenny and Shaq in the booth, they'll have like some funny halftime act and they'll often like Photoshop Charles's face on a dancer or something. They're like joke clowning them, memeing them. Yeah. yeah. And so this was this was a game where at halftime they had a contortionist. This guy named like Rubberman or something. They're just bending their body. Yeah. Okay. And so he had this like plexiglass box. So my my role in that game was to <laughs> me and another person carry this box this contortion is out to half court during halftime on our way <laughs> on our way into the court like kobe bryant is walking straight at me wow gives me this or just has this like weird look on his face like what in the world is this guy <laughs> doing in this little tiny box right and this guy this guy must have been like 411 himself yeah and then just like bends his leg over his head and this and that and gets into this little box Kobe and I did a little smirk at each other. And like at the time, I'm an intern and I'm just like, this is the greatest job in the world. Yeah. Like, I can't believe I'm living out my dream. <laughs> that passion that kind of kept me going propelled uh, my ambition and, and, and kind of where it all went from there. What got you that job with the Warriors? Was it luck, passion? Did you have, an, did you have a hookup? Did you have an inside? I credit my cousin. My cousin Janice. She's like my big sister. She was the makeup artist for the warrior girls. I can't not mention the fact that she started my career and I'm mm. forever grateful for that. So you're with the Warriors. How long are you with that organization? That it was a, yeah, it was a few years. So I kind of worked up the ladder from intern to then being a full-time intern in the office, uh, in the corporate partnerships department, and then moved up into a man managerial role around the time when Joe Lacob and Peter Guber were coming in to buy the team. So, so when the ownership year? transition happened. Or 2010? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was, this starts getting into like job interview format here, but I was working on every partnership proposal that came out of the Warriors organization. And I was just working on pitch decks and, and doing research on companies and brands. And so it's essentially tailoring the Warriors proposal to a specific business, whether it's Cisco or Cole. Yeah. Or so Uncle's Body Shop. I don't know, but totally. And at the yeah. Warriors, Uncle's Body Shop is going to have a tougher. Yeah, uh, tougher time paying for that sponsorship deal. But if you watch a basketball game and you see any advertisement around the stadium or the arena, signage on the on the court, signage in and around the stadium, commercials, PA read, digital advertisement, we were putting these packages together that would be uh, appealing to brands to align themselves with the Warriors. Now, that's a tougher sell when you're not a winning team. And so I think what happens is if you look around sports, some of the best business operations happen at teams that are not as successful on the field or the court uh, because they have to work extra hard to help bring in revenue. And so being at the Warriors when they weren't so great, um, you know, helped you kind of develop those skills. And then, of course, like when they moved on to the next level and became what I say, sorry, Chicago, but the greatest basketball team ever to play. That could be argued, but... That changes the, changes the landscape, and then you you tie that in with the growth of Silicon Valley and San Francisco startup world, and it's at a whole nother level now. But yes. I, I quickly, I left before that full transition ended up happening. 
So you leave Golden State, you leave the organization, you leave Oakland? Yeah. Okay. And I went from Oakland to Sacramento. So Sacramento is the capital of California. Yep. What do you do in Sacramento? When I was at the Warriors, I was volunteering at NBA All-Star Games. And the All-Star Game is where the superstars of the, you know, the, the East and the West, the best of the best, get together for one game. Mm-hmm. And it's a full-on weekend with different activities, and they play together. Yeah, I mean, okay. you've, had the, you've got the Sunday All-Star Game, the Saturday night festivities with the dunk contest and three-point shootout. It's considered mm-hmm. All-Star Weekend. It's so a lot of people there, a lot of eyes. It's the basketball convention, okay. if you will. A Syrian convention. Exactly. I like that. All right. Um, and so the one in Dallas uh, was at Cowboys Stadium. And so I ended up meeting Kevin Johnson, who was the mayor of Sacramento and also a former NBA player. And uh, also went to Cal uh, when he played in college. And so literally just shot my shot, went up to him, introduced myself. What was your intent we of kept, introducing we yourself? Into, I did not have one. So I, I was just ambitious about meeting people. And this was before the game started. And so I wait for him to finish his conversation. I go right up to him. To this day, he, would, he still gives me a hard time about how I met him. Because I said, hey, aren't you that mayor guy? <laughs> and he looks at me and says, Kevin Sacramento and I I said no I know I've watched you play I'm a big fan and I told him I've worked in politics I'd worked for current governor Gavin Newsom I worked on Gavin Newsom's mayoral campaign I name dropped that and I said I also work for the Warriors and so you know you've got to have when you go up and meet somebody fresh and new that you've never met before you've got to have the elevator like just in and out like quickly make your presence felt and leave the elevator pitch yeah yeah and so I did that and he pulls out his card and he says, if it doesn't work out at the Warriors, give me a call. Wow. Okay. So I'm just like looking at his card, walking away like I can't believe this, right? At the time that I was in touch with him in his office, it was a tricky time in Sacramento. The Kings ownership group was threatening to move the team. And so the Kings are a basketball team, mm-hmm. professional team in Sacramento. Yep. They're playing there. They've been playing there for a number of years. Yep. And at this point, they're trying to move to another city. The ownership group at the Kings is claiming to the NBA that the Sacramento market is not strong enough to support an NBA franchise. Business-wise. Business-wise. okay. Yeah. At the time, there was no Fortune 500 companies in Sacramento. If you look at some of the, you know, the cities that uh, have professional sports teams, oftentimes they will point to the business community to be able to support these teams. When the ownership group of the Kings is telling the NBA, who's, of course, based out of New York, that this market isn't good enough. The mayor wanted to take matters into his own hands. And of course, there was this driving force that was the fact that he played in the NBA. And how could a mayor, who's a former NBA player, lose an NBA team on his watch in his city? Mm -hmm. So I think there was an extra motivation there. What I was brought in to do was to help make a business case to the NBA that Sacramento deserves to keep its team. And so what happened was we as a city, and now I put the city hat on because I started working for the mayor's office, we as a city now, we're going out to the business community of Sacramento and rallying CEOs to say, let's step up and build a, a fund, build a coalition, build, a, build an advocacy group um, and put some dollars behind our advocacy and say, let's sponsor and support the Kings. And so we work closely on just building up the corporate base that ended up, you know, fast forwarding, helping keep the team in Sacramento. So you keep the team in Sacramento. What is... What is the king, where did the king sit now in terms of being in Sacramento? What has happened as a result of your work and the work of others? 
it's unbelievable to see. I mean, Sacramento's gone through a transformation. Where does the where does the arena sit now? So it's right in downtown, and so that project, you know, the Sacramento Fight to Save the Kings project, really put me onto the importance of sport as a source of civic pride, as a source of economic development, and and what it can do for cities. Uh, and I so I saw firsthand the development of the arena just transform Sacramento. And so now in downtown, I mean, you'll see cranes up in the sky and all this development happening as a result of 17,000 people showing up every other night to either a basketball game or a concert. Our motto was bigger than basketball. And I remember I was living in Sacramento at this time. Were you awarded 40 under 40 during this time or was it? Post-Kings. Post-Kings. Okay. What did you do? So the arena gets built in downtown Sacramento. The the Kings, the Sacramento Kings are able to stay in Sacramento. And then what projects are left for you in Sacramento? There were some twists and turns in that process. Without boring people with the details, the fight I worked on was Anaheim. That was the first city that the ownership group at the Kings wanted to move to. Hmm. And then once we fended them off, if you will, the next fight was Seattle. So Seattle, who had lost the Supersonics, ended up bringing an ownership group together and was trying to entice the Kings to move there and to rename them and rebrand them the Seattle Supersonic. Wow. So that would be the death of the Kings yeah, and a blow to Sacramento. But in between those two fights was a, a long dead period where you know we had done the legwork that then ended up making that business case. Kind of my job had been fulfilled there. Uh, I ended up moving to New York, being a part of a startup soccer team um, that had ambitions to going into major league soccer called the Cosmos. So you switch up sports, you go from basketball to soccer. Yeah. Okay. Which was natural to me because I've grown up around the game. I played it as a kid and growth of soccer in America, I think was really appealing to me. Um, And of course, like being in New York, which one of the greatest experiences of my life, the New York Cosmos were this iconic club in the seventies, you know, Pelé and Beckenbauer and all these guys played for them. After their prime. After their prime but they were still good. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there was a time in the 70s where the Cosmos were doing like 70,000 fans at Giant Stadium. And this was like during like Studio 54 era and these guys were rock stars. During disco, yeah. Yeah. Of course, you know, 30 years passes and they tried to revive the Cosmos. And so I was there running their corporate partnerships, helping build up this club who had ambitions of going into MLS. I think that was professional soccer league in America. Yeah. Okay. Major League Soccer. How long were you there for? A couple years. And then what happened there was the New York market closed up for MLS. They ended up getting an expansion team that was owned by the owners of Manchester City. So they built a club called NYCFC. And they ended up dropping an unprecedented franchise fee at the time. Um, And so that ended up closing the door to the Cosmos as it pertain to going to MLS. Around the same time, Sacramento then had ambition of getting an MLS expansion team, so I ended Mm. up going back. Did they pull you back in, or is this something that you naturally found yourself? No, pulled back in. Like, the same group that I worked with that helped fight for the Kings was now looking at the new frontier, the new venture, um, and that was soccer. So I ended up coming back to work on that. So right now your LinkedIn has you listed as Vice President of Strategic Initiatives yeah. for the Sacramento Republic. Which is a very general title, right? But it covers a lot of different things. And so specifically what my role has been for the last almost five years now has been working on the city's bid to getting an expansion award for MLS. Meaning by expansion award, meaning being part of the league. 
part of Major League Soccer in America? Yeah, so MLS is growing like, you know, wildfire. It's looking to expand into different markets. We want Sacramento to be that market. And the next new market. Yeah. Okay. And so I could fast forward to today where we feel really good about our prospects. You know, you may have read some reports that were premature, but speaking very favorably about our chances to becoming the next Major League Soccer expansion city. I hope that goes through. Thank you, man. I, and I think it was during this time when you came back to Sacramento working for the Sacramento Republic when you were recognized as 40 individuals that are influential within Sacramento that are under the age of 40 years old. How was it receiving the award, 40 under 40? It was cool. I mean, it was, it was fulfilling. It was interesting, though, to get an award before our job has been done, right? Like, it, it just felt a little premature for me just because I came back to Sacramento for a specific task. And that task is still five years in the making. And so it's a little bit still premature for me. Do you ever come across the Syrians in, in, in your field of sports management or sports business? Yeah, there's a guy that lived in Sacramento named Peter Ibrahim. And him and I used to spend a lot of time together at local coffee shops in Sacramento. And then he decided to ditch me. Yeah, big mistake, man. That was a big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you see? I, so you work in sports, obviously. You've worked in basketball. You currently work in soccer. Do you see uh, a potential of recruiting young Assyrians into soccer clubs in the United States? Yeah, so the format here, and I get a lot of emails and calls about this very topic. I mean, we've got a lot of good players that play in this, in this country that are Assyrian. There's actually some Assyrian players that are in MLS currently. So Steven Bitashur, who plays for LAFC. Mm -hmm. uh, Justin, who plays for Atlanta now. These are guys of, that are of our blood that are playing in MLS. Um, there's a lot of players around the world, too. A lot of guys in Sweden. And so with the sport growing at the rate it's growing at, there's a lot of kids that are really good at soccer. What MLS has tasked every team to do within its league is to build a youth academy to help grow the game from the grassroots levels. Yeah. And investing in the sport when kids are in their formative years, especially from a talent building perspective. What would you say those formative years are? Gosh, I mean, it, it differs for everybody that you you, you, know, you talk to. Soccer is different than basketball in that you're, you're not going to see a Giannis Antetokounmpo in soccer, meaning a guy who didn't pick up a basketball until, you know, 14 or 16 years old and became an MVP of the NBA. Like that does not exist in soccer. Soccer is such a technical game you cannot rely on your physical ability and size and length. You have to rely on your skill. Best player in the world is, what, five foot six? Yeah. And so it's, all, it's a, such a technical game that you have to develop those skills at a very early age to be able to, and then continue to develop those skills when you get into teenage and adulthood years. And so that's, you know, if you subscribe to the like Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours theory or whatever, then you've got to put in the time. What does that theory say of 10,000 hours? If you have to devote yourself? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a big Malcolm Gladwell guy, but you've got to, to be great at something, the idea is like putting 10,000 hours into it. Okay. And that'll help make you great. You know, you, you think about like the pressure that Tiger Woods' dad put on him or Serena and Venus Williams' dad put on them. And that's well-documented pressure, but it, it ended up, you know, glass is made. And, and so that's a kind of idea or mm -hmm. diamond is made. I'm sorry. And that's the kind of idea. So you have your nine to five with the Sacramento Republic. Nothing, nothing. Look, let me just get this, <laughs> make <laughs> this record straight. There is no such thing as a nine to five job in sports. It's an around the clock endeavor and, and weekends included. That's just the reality. 
So what is your passion besides the Sacramento Republic? I'm passionate about a lot of things. Um, I'm passionate about lately the power of sport uh, as a force for social good. I think sport has the potential to change communities, bring people together. My father's had this big impact on me about music in that it's the universal language. And my dad sings different languages and got criticized for it. I remember growing up by Assyrian nationalists, you know, if you want to call them that. But music is a universal language. And I think sports is the same way. If you watch the World Cup or if you watch the FIBA World Cup for basketball just that just ended, you're seeing people from all walks of life from all different parts of the world. And you're seeing this platform, this game, this sport, this, these lines, these boundaries end up bringing people together at a level that, you know, there's no, I think politicians would dream of creating that type of harmony between people. And so that's where I'm really focused on now. I'm a co-founder of a team that just started in Oakland. And a lot of what I'm talking about is really embodied in that, in that Oakland is a really progressive community. And people have just drawn to this team called Oakland Roots because it preaches diversity, it preaches universality, it preaches sports impact on society. I think that is an angle that is not explored enough, and I think it's starting to. But there's so many instances that have happened in recent years, from Colin Kaepernick to the the girl in Iran who set herself on fire because she wasn't allowed to and attend the game. Yeah. You realize the impact sports has on society and the conversations that happen at every level as a result. Yeah. Sports is it's a unifier. I've seen documentary documentaries on Iraq and Saddam. It's propaganda, but they'll show a clip at the soccer stadium in Baghdad and it's just full of people out there. It's a picnic. And I remember hearing stories of when the Assyrian winged bulls used to play in Chicago and how Biba, mm-hmm. the famous Assyrian singer, would be in the stands singing and joking. Like it's it brings people from all walks of life into the stands, you know? And and speaking of winged bull, I think it's also a worthy Shout and and shout out to Raman Oshana, who yeah, was one of the Alam founders. Yeah. That's a man who who had that vision a long time ago, and those are the the stories that inspired me as a kid, getting involved in sports from a, a Syrian level to a professional level. Yeah, I mean, I was reading up that he started the Assyrian Athletic Club, mm-hmm. which next year I believe will celebrate its 50th anniversary. Unbelievable, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, it's just a testament to someone who has thrived in their community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and look, I mean, the Syrians are appreciative of that. You know, we us here in the diaspora. I mean, my experience is in the diaspora. I've I've heard some of your guests that have had their experiences at Gishru or different times that they've visited the homeland. I have never visited the homeland, um, and so my experience is I do plan on visiting the homeland though. But my experience is from the diaspora, community building, and how important it is for us to be unified and together. You know, oftentimes these political functions or these types of like more serious and dry types of gatherings maybe don't entice young people the same way. Not that they're not as important, it's just that they're they're different. And so I think sports is one way. I think it's an it's an area that we can explore more uh, as a community and I think we can we have a lot to build from, a lot of good things to build from. One of our co-hosts was kind enough to submit a few questions that I'd like to run past Let's do it. So the MLS years ago put out some simple guidelines for new expansion teams. Was it frustrating to get passed by franchises like Cincinnati FC, Nashville, and St. Louis, who may have had dedicated ownership teams, but were seemingly given a pass on their stadium situation? 
So clearly your colleague has been following this situation very closely. He he is very passionate uh -huh. and he didn't want to derail the interview, but I was like, I'm going to give you the chance to ask these questions. Yeah, I can answer it as simply as possible. It was not frustrating. We knew what we had to deliver all along. And the criteria is very simple. What do leagues look for in cities when they award them expansion teams. For your listeners around the world, it's different in America where you know you can't promote yourself into a top division by your play. So if you win the minor league championship, doesn't mean you're moving up into the yeah. top league. It's a different structure. It's different from the Premier League in sure. England. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a closed system. And so to get in, you have to get votes from the, from the expansion committee and votes from the board, which comprises of the other owners of the other teams. So what do they look for? They look for three things, and this is public information. They look for strong markets, and a lot goes into strong market, from support for soccer to demographics to household income to all the research that goes into what supports a market. Sacramento is a top 20 TV market in America, and a lot of people don't know that. The next thing is a stadium plan. Can you build an ideal stadium in downtown? Uh, I think what John is referring to you know, New York City, FC, and Atlanta, I think he had mentioned in the past, too, are two cities that are major cities, major markets, but don't play in soccer-specific stadiums. But, you know, those are exceptions to the rule. MLS is looking for, can you build a soccer-specific stadium, ideally in a downtown urban core? Yeah. And so we were able to do that. We have private land in downtown. It's the largest infill project uh, west of the Mississippi, and it's right in the heart of Sacramento. It's just, just an incredible opportunity. And so MLS is really fond of that opportunity, as are our investors, which leads to the third point, which is you have to build an ownership group that has the wherewithal, the profile, to be able to support not only what it costs to create a team now, but what it costs to f support and fund a team in the future as the league projects its growth. And so we have a lead investor who's a billionaire and we have a lot a lot of good local owners who are committed to the community, have investments all around Sacramento and, and are passionate about this opportunity. And, and so we've brought all of that to the table. Yeah. One theme that is very prevalent in this interviews community. Mm -hmm. Over 15 years ago, and this is another one of John's questions which I love because it was a time that I grew up in. But over 15 years ago, Casual NBA fans were treated to some of the best home court atmosphere you could feel through the television at then Arco Arena, which you referred to, in Sacramento, where the Sacramento Kings played. What are some of the similarities and differences in the home at atmosphere at Republic Games? Does it remind you of what the fandom for the Kings was like in their heyday in the early 2000s? Yeah, it does. Have you been to a Kings game at Arco? No. Yeah. You've taken me to a couple, actually. That's right. Yeah. That, was, that was a trick question. <laughs> was that a reminder? That was a trick question. Um, yeah, it does. I mean, when you go to our stadium currently, our soccer stadium, it's a beautiful facility for the league that it's in. And it's certainly a great experience. But what really makes the experience is not the venue. It's not the bleachers. It's, it's the people. It's the fans. And we've got, you know, we're doing 11,000 people a game. And they're stomping their feet on the bleachers the way they would stomp their feet at Arco, right? Cheering on the Kings. Yeah. It's it's a loud environment. Our supporters group is unbelievable. They're passionate. They sing chants throughout the game. I mean, it's a really fun time to just come out and watch soccer, but it's like a rock concert, right? Like a, there's just so much going on. You know, that reminds me of Arco a little bit, but Arco is a little bit different where you had the cowbells and Yeah. I mean, it was that was it just a special loud. time. Yeah. They would always bring out the the meter where it would measure how loud 
yeah the arena was and it was always in just this insane level and i always rooted on the kings even though i was a warriors fan because the warriors weren't competitive during that time as a warrior fan you're just conditioned to hate the lakers <laughs> And so when the Kings were playing the Lakers, I was all in on the Kings. Of course. I mean, we just wanted to kill those guys. To this day, I agree with the conspiracy theorists of the Kings losing out on the Western Conference Finals, but there, we'll leave, that's another conversation. There's a good YouTube video on that, a little <laughs> breakdown of the officiating in that game. That's a sore spot for Sacramento. You don't it mention, is. there's two things you don't mention in Sacramento. It's game six, which is what you're referring to. And there's a name that you don't mention, and it's Robert Ory. Oh, man. You remember that shot? Yeah. He hit a shot against everyone, but that was bad that he hit against them. Vladi tipped the ball. Yeah. He tipped the rebound. Instead of grabbing the rebound, he tipped the rebound. It went right in Ory's hands, and he drills a three from the top of the key. To end the fate for the Kings, they, 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 that, was, that was the year. That was the year. I think the kids out there should Google Robert Ory. <laughs> Benny, you have or you're working on this initiative magazine. I want you to introduce it. Tell us. I'm I just followed it on Instagram because I got this request to follow and I assumed it was you. But Yeah, it was me. You better follow. Man. <laughs> Did you follow? Yeah, of course. Yeah. No, so look, I mean, this is a new project. And it's a side project for now, but hopefully it'll build out into something different. It's called Le Court, and it's a sportswear brand inspired by basketball culture, looking to bridge the worlds of fashion and basketball. So are um, you creating fashion? Yeah, so I have a partner of mine, Farouk Urshad, who is deep in the business. He's got a brand of his own, and he is in the manufacturing business. And uh, him and I just put our minds together on creating something from thin air. We're kind of in the, in the beginning pre-launch research phase of coming out with some f you know, fun products. And we're also a little bit unique. Uh, it'll be a creative collective as well. So we'll be featuring work from prominent photographers, artists, and content creators in the world of sports and bringing those front and center uh, okay. as we build out our brand as well. This is actually a good, uh, today I was sitting at my cubicle and I was like, I wanna ask a question that is related to both fashion, hip hop, and sports. Okay. You know, kind of this triple threat, if you will. Are you talking about the shirt you're wearing right now? Is that no, the question? No, but Benny gifted the shirt I'm the, that I'm wearing right now. It's, it says, uh, on a Tuesday indeed. <laughs> and I still get compliments on it to this day. And I still wear it proudly because it's a beautiful shirt. I'll have to Instagram it for all my friends out there. But going back to the question, what tracksuit would you wear? What brand? You got to go with Kappa, man. Really? Come on. You got to go with the Italian mobster son tracksuit. What shoes Ulti are you wearing? Diodoras. What color, what color is the tracksuit? It's, it's, of course, it's blue, white, and red, man. It's got to be blue, white, and red. You got a little bit of green in there, too. It's got to be Italian colors, man. <laughs> when you talk about tracksuit, like, I, my mind immediately goes to, like, Chris from Sopranos, right? Like, I, I think of the slick back hair yep. immediately. It's maybe even, even velour. I was going to guess Puma for you, but Kappa it is. I like that. Who are your influencers? In what? In, in anything. Who am I inspired by? Yeah. Gosh, that's Who's been one. your inspiration? I mean, you talk about your grandfather, your father being your inspiration. My father is an inspiration of mine. 
What I admire about my father is, you know, among other things, is that his music is very honest. He is not afraid to tell uncomfortable truths about himself and his experiences in his music. It's very personal music, especially the songs that he wrote himself. And even if they're not written by him, he channels himself. My dad's like, you know, when he's recording, like he's in re recording mode. It's almost like a method actor where like that week, you just kind of let him be like he's in his zone. Ah. And what I admire about Kanye, pre-MAGA Kanye, because we're not down with Kanye anymore, <laughs> but pre-MAGA Kanye, what I really admire about him is he puts him, his life out there for consumption. He puts his pain in recording art, in visual art, whether it's negative or positive, whether it paints him in a positive or negative light, he's comfortable enough using music and fashion and, and art as his medium to say, this is me and let, let's learn from me. Like he's a test case for yeah. his listeners. My dad, I relate to that because I see, I see my dad do similar things. There's some songs that, you know, I, I hear and I can't believe, like he, I can't believe he's saying that because it's so personal. And people may hear it and not think it's personal, but some of those songs are. My dad is devoted to music. So I, I learned work ethic from him. You know, my dad a long time ago was, you know, I don't know, he had a bad day or something, but he says, Bruni, you know what? I think I'm going to retire from music. Just get rid of this it. This was a long time ago. This was Let's years get ago. out altogether. Like, I'm just going to retire. What, what led to that? I don't remember. And I don't think it was anything serious or not. Like I said, it could have been a bad day. My reaction to him was I just started laughing. I just laughed in his face. And I'm like, you're not retiring. Like, music is a vocation. Music is not a career. It's not a job. You don't clock in and clock out. Music is your life. That level of passion in what you do that's an inspiration to me. You know, of course, like beyond that, people in the industry that I admire, I admire LeBron. I admire the fact that LeBron has, he understands his role as an athlete beyond just someone who dribbles the basketball or makes flashy passes or beautiful dunks and, and clutch shots in games. He understands the role of athletes, which goes beyond. Um, he's built a school. He's done so much for, for people. And I think his legacy will live on uh, because of that. Who's the best basketball player out there? In history and present. Again, no offense to, to the Chicago listeners. I think LeBron's the best player to ever play. I'll stop there. If you want me to explain it, I can. No, it's okay. People will DM you for that, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Three things that come to your mind when you hear the word Assyrian. The first thing I hear, I think of is Ashurian. Because it, there's one complicated reality about the nomenclature. Is that Assyrian is a product of the Greek mispronunciation of our name. Mm -hmm. And that just bothers me that our identity now is framed by how the Greeks mispronounced us. Like I, watching, and then it's just to take it back to sports, like I love watching the announcers who like pronounce the, the Latin names correctly, right? Like the Spanish speaking players, like whether they're from Mexico or Honduras or wherever, like I admire people that take the time and, and put in the care and, and give proper respect to people, like put respect on our name, right? Yeah. That's what that means to me. So um, there's that. The other word is struggle. You know, Assyrian, the Assyrian story is a story of struggle since we were born and far before that in modern history. Those stories are just ingrained in all of us. We all carry the weight of what's happened to our people in our daily lives. I mean, I think you see, you mentioned in one of your podcasts about old photos and how people's reactions were neutral or, yeah. or negative or whatnot. 
and, I, and that could have been a, a cultural thing at the time, right? Like people stared at a camera differently than they do today. You can't help but see the pain on people's faces. Those faces say a lot. You know, that, that's painful to me to see. And the fact that our story, whenever someone asks you who you are, where you're from, you know, we all have our, going back to elevator pitch, we all have our elevator explanation of who we are but it quickly moves into the struggle that we've experienced. And so that lives with all of us. Another word? Yeah. Another word is khuyada. Unity. Unity is a very important motif for our people. And it's oftentimes when you hear the word unity, it's, it's us saying, preaching for more of it. Like I didn't want to use the word division because I don't want that to be the defining term of who we are. But I think it's the call for unity. There's so many ways that we've been split, whether it's by ideology or geography, Matuate, which is, you know, our village or tribe, you know, mentality from the homeland that is carried into the diaspora. I think there's just a call for unity that continues to have to happen. And whether that's expressed through art or sports or politics itself, you can never preach unity enough within our community. You know, my grandfather told me something a long time ago that just stuck with me. He says to me, he says, you are more Californian than you are Gaurnaya or Ormijnaya because you've never been to those villages. You've never been a part of those tribes. You were born here. It doesn't matter. Why create a division for that mere fact? That's lived with me. In what context do you think he painted that? And like, what was his end game in communicating that to you? He references the need for khuyada in, in that song that I mentioned, which is Rigdit Khuyada. Yeah, that you're dead. Turai, yeah. right? That, that mentality, that, that's a common, you know, that's a common story or motif, again, in my father's music, is that we are all of the same blood. And the story of our people is complicated. You know, we have been conquerors and we have been conquered. And so we all have that complex. I'm most passionate about our backs being straight in a society that wants to continue to make us feel lesser. Like, let's not allow that to happen. That's a common conversation for all minorities in this country, especially at this time. Right. And more important for us to identify that and just strengthen up and unify. Do you feel a connection to Beth Mahran? Of course, yeah. And of course, and if I go there, I think it would have an even greater impact on me. That goes without saying. I want to I hear, I mean, we've talked a lot about your experience there. And of course, you've been there several times now, right? Yeah. But I'm sure it's moved you. It's moving beyond what I thought would be moving to me. And I, I think I've had the opportunity to talk about that in all of my interviews. Talking about it is one thing, but experience it. I mean, I remember my friend always refers to it as recharging the batteries mm -hmm. when you go back there. But I don't, want, I don't want to dive deep into myself because... That's you for are another the, day, yeah, right? Yeah, you are the guest. We're going to now go into a special segment, Benny. Okay. You're just going to have to be patient with me on this one. But this comes by way of... I want to give props to your fiancé. Okay. Shaman and Adessa. Adessa Kuriakis. Yeah. Who is one of our co-founders and co-hosts. Shout but, out. Shout out to Shaman and Adessa. Yeah. What we're going to do now is we're going to play a series of songs. Okay. You get one point if you get the song. You get one point if you get the artist. You get five points <laughs> if you get the song and the artist sampled from. You know, so we're going to throw you a softball here. So, so wait a second. If I f identify the sample, that's an extra five? Sa yeah. Okay, let's go. Artist let's and go. sample, yeah. Let's do it. All right, so this is going to be easy. Let's see if this works. Yeah, right. It's probably going to be... Oh. This, this is all right. You can pause. Do, I, do, I, do you pause and then I call it out, or do I call it over the music? 
I think what, what we're gonna do is like let her play a little bit. All right, this is this is Notorious V.I.G. Juicy. I don't remember the sample. Calling police on me when I was just trying to make some money to feed my daughter. So and listen, it's a long struggle. You know what I'm saying? It's all good, baby. Make it. It was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine. All right, Apple Music hooked it up. All right, next song. This is rap. This is rapping forte. The Players Club. Okay. I don't know the sample of this, man. So that gets you two points. Okay. So that's two points for Juicy, two right. points for Players Club. All right, next song. This is Kanye. This is the one with Twista. What's it called? Overnight Celebrity by Kanye. Bam! How about the sample? I don't know. Man, you're going... These are all like old soul samples, man. So this is credited to Twista. You were right. Overnight Celebrity. Yep. Yeah. Let's go to the next one. Let's see if you know. I don't know if this has a sample, but this is one that I threw in. Ooh, this is most deaf. Um, I don't remember the name of the song, but this song was in a Michael Jordan commercial. You remember that? You don't remember that. You're too, you're too young for that. This is Umi Says by Most Def. That's it. Uh. Let it ride, baby. This is a good song, man. This is one of my favorite songs on that album. I was just thinking about We're that. dancing over here, by the way. Just, I know there's no video cameras here. <laughs> Peter and I are dancing over here. All right, let's go to the next song. So we have three more. I think they get better and better. Let's do it. This is one that I threw in there. Of course, that's the one I don't know. Man, I don't, I'm probably disappointing a lot of hip-hop heads right now, but I don't know. Andre Nicotino. Oh, man, see? Tears of a Clown. Man, you know what? A lot of my friends are going to be really angry with me right now for not knowing this. This is local Bay Area, Yeah, baby. this is, this is. I was more of an E-40 guy, man. <laughs> All right, so two more. Let's get this. Ooh, yes. This is, uh... I always forget if this is Far Side. Is this Far Side? No, it's not. Oh, Pete Rock and CL Smooth. Got it. Reminisce. And this song, this song was the opening theme song to NBA Street Volume 2. Do you remember that? That I do remember. They reminisce over you, baby. That's right. This is a classic. Yo, play that, man. Yeah. We got time. <laughs> Look at the car on that. It's like old-school Mercedes. By the way, for the rec, so Peter's hiding his phone from me while he's calling out these songs, and then until the end when he shows it when I'm right. Okay, this is not a this is not a hip hop or rap song, okay. but. 
It was sampled, and then I want to see if you can find out what song it was sampled in. Alright? Well, I know who was who sampled this. Yeah. God, what's that rap group, man? There's a rap group that sampled this. But oh. This is horrible. Like again, I'm disappointing a lot of people. I'm trying to remember their name. Who is this? Wait. PM Don sampled this. I don't know who this is. Who is this? Spandau Ballet. Like, I was going to know that, And Peter. it's called True. How P in the world would I know that? PM Dawn. PM. Apparently, this song, Set Adrift on Memory Bliss of You, is not available on Apple Music because of some copyright re-recording. That's horrible. But I could not find. But I, I, I want to give you I want to give you some props for, for getting some of these songs, you know? I'm a hip-hop head, man. Not like some others, but uh, enough to get by in this little trivia game here. So we usually end the interview, the podcast, with one question. What is one thing that you would like to leave the Assyrian nation with? Oh man, this is... It depends on what kind of note I want to end this on. Uh, I'll end it on a positive. Because there's a, this is a tumultuous time for our people in the diaspora. And I'll speak to that because that's my experience. I hope and pray and encourage progressive-minded Assyrians to be louder and more involved in our community and not let this prevailing thought that you have to think and be a certain way in order to participate in, within your community, don't let that discourage you. We are still in the early stages of formulating our society, if you will. I'm encouraged by young Assyrians that I read on Twitter and on Instagram who are just proud about who they are and are not ashamed of expressing it. I think the definition of what it means to be Assyrian is not to be defined by anyone. That's a personal question. I think there's this thought that unless you participate in Assyrian institutions, that you're not part of the community. That's just That just doesn't hold true for me. The power of media, the power of social media, the ability for us to just come together with so many in so many different ways. There are so many platforms for us to advertise ourselves to the world, tell our story to the world, and that could be a different story. So my idea of unity isn't that we all need to be of one philosophy or one ideology. My idea for, for unity is that we can live amongst each other and respect each other's different beliefs, mm -hmm. whether those are political, whether those are religious, or whether or not we disagree on what basketball team we like. Yeah. The other thing I'll, I'll mention is we all talk about umtanayuta. I think umtanayuta has a, I mean, when you define it, Peter, what, what's the translation of that word to you in English? Nationalist, patriot, someone who loves their nation. Yeah, so, so you nailed it, right? Like, but here's the thing. Nationalism and patriotism are two different things. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So to interchange those two words on one word, it doesn't necessarily apply, right? If you read George Orwell's notes on nationalism, he talks about a loose definition of the word nationalism and that it doesn't have to necessarily connect to a state and that that term is a little bit more dangerous than the term patriotism. Patriotism is to be proud of your people nationalism is to try to advance your interests at the expense of others. I think we need to figure out who we are. I like to call myself a patriot, and I think that positions ourselves for unity a lot better, and that we won't fall victim to the same things that we condemn. 
I'll end there. Benny, it's been a pleasure. Likewise, yeah, Peter. Man, I love this. We'll Thank continue you. this conversation over some Arak. <laughs> I know you're a big fan. You've had a few. <laughs> I had to call you out, man. Now I get a reputation, man. <laughs> Thanks again to Steve Nutness for opening up his house to Th us. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, everybody. 